Man, you guys, you not only need a new pastor, you need new stuff. <laughs> the last three times I've preached at places, I drop my sermon, I try to move things, they fall apart. Uh, good morning, Go Church. Thanks for joining us in person on this really beautiful, sunny Pacific Northwestern day. I know you are all just excited to get out of your house and get all of that fresh vitamin D from the sun. I know I was. Uh, thank you uh, for supporting me and my family. If those of you don't know me, uh, my name's Dustin. Uh, my kids are here. My wife's at home with another kid who's sick. Uh, we're planting a church in Portland, Oregon. We have been. We were part of Go Church Ridgefield, um, I guess, about a year ago or two. And uh, we are just trying to advance God's kingdom in cooperation with you to plant healthy churches. As you know, your pastor is gone. I thought I'd take this amazing opportunity. Like, you, like I can, I'm, I'm like literally unaccountable. Mark invited me here to preach, but he's gone. Uh, Connor, I mean, the, the vote's not out yet. We don't know. So I can preach whatever I want. And you can... I know. Hey, you know what? And you can get mad at me, I guess. But the good news is, is I might not come back. So what a better time to talk about the apocalypse. So with that, uh, I wanted to share a bit about what the new stuff, new stuff. I wanted to share a bit about what the uh, Christmas season and how the church has celebrated that over um, the globe and over the millennia, but this season is called Advent, a word that means coming. And one of the cool things that I think the church has done for thousands of years is that during the season of Advent, where we're kind of patiently and expectantly awaiting Jesus Christ to come in the manger on Christmas Day, the church thought it was a really awesome idea to talk and preach through the texts where Jesus comes the second time. And so through the whole Christmas season, historically in our church, we've always had these, these we'll, we'll change, uh, I got the janky one. It's because it's inside your shirt. Oh, it's inside my shirt. Oh, well, here we go. That happened to me too. It's okay. Yeah, I think it might just go with that guy. Turn this guy off. I promise I've preached. First time? You knew? <laughs> hey, hey, you want to just read that? <laughs> and on the first day. <laughs> Great. All right, we're going to go this way. Yeah. It seemed like a good idea at the time, but I'm like tangled in my arm. Oh. There we go. Here it is. Here it is. We, we got your brother. Thank you. There we go. Yep. It is indeed a movie today. So here we are. So we'll start over. My name's Dustin, if you didn't know that. No, we'll, we'll skip that piece. But the season is about Advent and coming. And so what the church has done historically is they've paired uh, the coming and return of Jesus Christ the second time with the first time. Because both were unexpected and came in ways um, that were surprising. And so I thought again, um, hey, there's no pastor here. This is a great time to upset everyone with my opinion on how it all ends. And so, uh, it's kind of funny, but if you're going to follow along in the bulletin, there's three questions. Those three questions really aren't for right now, this morning. I'm hoping that those questions you might take with you 
into the week because one of the things that I absolutely believe the Bible is doing is trying to move us to action to live and follow Jesus, to live like him and to be like him. And so our sermon text, if you're taking notes, uh, you're going to love these. Uh, it's Mark 13, 24 through 36, uh, with a brief stop in everybody's favorite, Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 22. Uh, and we'll even get a little bit of revelation in there, uh, chapter 3, verses 20 through 22. So that's kind of going to be where we'll be. Um, I also, in my custom, provide you a map of where we're going. So you can track with me. So these are the places we're going this morning. Uh, pit stop one is terrifying dreams, followed by God at your house. Uh, and then, of course, the last piece for our map is no rest for the righteous. And so as we reflect on the text this morning, I um, want you to get maybe one key big idea. Like if you leave with anything this morning, it would be this. Jesus is king already. Jesus is king already. His kingdom is invading right now, and there's still more glory to come. Jesus is king right now. His kingdom is invading, and there's still more glory to come. And so when I was a kid, I was frankly terrified and confused by the last book of our Bible. And if you've ever, I mean, sadly, many times had to open up the book yourself, you're like, what is even this? And, and I'll be honest with you, a lot of pastors don't like to preach from any of the apocalyptic texts. And the answer is just because there's so many Christian ministries that have um, built opinions and timelines and maps that a lot of our people get invested in. And so a lot of times your local pastor does not feel confident to preach because it's almost a guarantee that someone will be upset. As I already mentioned to you, here we are in this magical moment where you have no pastor to be upset at, only me. So I will go as the scapegoat. So I'd like to clarify three things to limit the amount of discord before I begin this morning. Uh, one is that every Orthodox Christian believes that Jesus Christ is returning. If you're a Christian, we all believe that. That's great news. We all agree on the end on something. So you're going to hear that this morning. Two, our first disagreement might be how Jesus comes back which I'm not going to talk a lot about, but you might hear hints or echoes. You might get triggered by a phrase I use. I don't know, but I just wanted to give you that notice. Uh, and third, the thing that we seem all to care way too much about is when Jesus returns, um, which I would just want to exercise some uh, pastoral opinion on myself, and that is it's a mystery for a reason. Um, and I'm not going to build a timeline or a map this morning, um, but I do believe that Jesus wants to speak to us this morning about his coming. So, Jesus is king already. So again, this is, this is the thing. If you hear something you don't like, remember, just repeat this with me. Jesus is king already. His kingdom is invading right now, and there's more glory to come. 
So that'll be our, that'll, if you ever feel uneasy in this ride, just remember, okay, we all believe the same thing. We might just differ on some of the dots. So with that, let's get into terrifying dreams, and hopefully we'll begin to open up parts of our Bible that we have either ignored or have been scared to talk through, and actually we might find really encouraging because the gospel's there. So, this morning we're in the Gospel of Mark, and we're entering at the end of Jesus' ministry in chapter 13. It's two days before Passover. Jesus is getting a little uh, heated with—he's moving from parables that are ambiguous to language around the apocalypse, the coming of the Son of Man, clouds of fire, chariots burning, um, all the nine yards that you would expect— Now, I wanted to start by saying that the word apocalypse is not in and of itself a scary word. It means a revealing. That's it. The word apocalypse is a revealing. Um, The word revelation in your Bible, the word is apocalypse. It has in our current culture this connotation of destruction and death and scary stuff, but the Christian writers use this word to talk a lot about Jesus's kingdom. And so that's the real good news, that we all get to start off talking about the goodness of God. And so we drop into verse 24, and it's right after this moment that Jesus has been teaching that, hey, in these latter times, there's going to be people who claim they're they're the Christ. There's going to be false prophets who would lead God's chosen, his elect, astray. And then he moves into verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. The image that Jesus is giving here is that there's a cosmic upheaval in heaven. Something major is changing. In verse 26, he says, And then they're going to see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he's going to send out his messengers, his angels, and gather his chosen, his elect, from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. He's inaugurating this big movement to bring all of his people together. And what's fascinating is that the way Jesus likes to talk about himself is as the son of man. And I know we all know him as the son of God, which he is. But if you look through scripture, Jesus's favorite identity for himself is the son of man. And I wanted to just highlight that a little bit because what does that mean? This is another kind of phrase that you might hear often that we kind of run past. It seems semi-mysterious. But, but son of man just literally means the son of a man. It's a colloquial phrase for a human. So Jesus keeps referring to himself throughout scripture as, hey, there's the coming of the human, the human, the human. And he's trying to anchor us into a scriptural biblical idea of a certain kind of human That's in Daniel chapter 7. And we'll jump into there. And Daniel 7 has this idea of the Son of Man. And it's right where we're going to be in verse 9 is after the description of these four beasts, these kingly beast rulers that are just completely destructive in the way they go about things. And so here in verse 9, we have the prophet Daniel saying, As I looked, thrones 
multiple thrones, were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. So God's throne is kind of like on this fiery chariot. Um, I'm reminded, if you know the story of Elijah, there's these fiery chariots that come and get him. Like, that's God activity. So in Daniel, he has this image of God's thrones coming down in some sort of uh, flaming, fiery chariot. And it seems super cool. Like, oh man, if God's going to come, it's going to be cool like that. But maybe the first piece of like notice to us is that there's thrones in the chariot, not just a throne, which might be alarming if you were a Jewish believer, believing in the one God. Why would there ever be multiple thrones? There's only one king. As Christians, we've developed this idea out very thoroughly that, well, wait, actually this has a lot to do with Daniel 7, so I'll hold on. And so in 10, it says, a stream of fire issued and came out from before this ancient of days, and thousands, thousands served him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before this ancient of days. And then this, the court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Um, I can just kind of imagine the chariot comes down, there's flaming fire, and all of a sudden it's like an episode of divorce court, right? All of a sudden the judge shows up, the plaintiff, and there's also the defendant, they're there. The books are opened, and there's going to be some sense of justice, And he takes his seat on that throne to begin this judging work. Verse 11, he says, I looked then because the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking from one of these beasts. I looked and the beast was killed. Its body was destroyed and it was given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion, weird word, their rule, their rulership, was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So there's like these other beasts and kings that have this power and this dominion, and God takes their rulership away, doesn't kill them, just takes their power, to give it to somebody else. In verse 13, I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a human. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given that rulership, that dominion, and the glory, and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. Not the Ancient of Days, but this man, this human. His dominion, his rulership is an everlasting rulership, which won't pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. So God takes away that dominion and rulership from these kings, and he gives it to a new king. Like Jesus at the cross is the king He becomes the king. He's inaugurated. He is now the king already. His kingdom is invading. And yes, there's still more glory to come. And listen to this. This is what Daniel says. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious. 
and the visions of my head alarmed me. What's so alarming about this? To be a monotheistic Jew and see a man get all the rulership in a kingdom that's eternal. Real big stretch for the faith. And then there's like all of the beasts and he saw the triumph and the thrones. And so in 16 he says, I approached one of those who stood there and I asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. He says, these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. That's really good news. Tucked away in maybe a part of our Bible that we don't read so much. How do we, as the text says, the saints of the Most High, us, receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever and ever? And we do this through Christ our King, the hope of glory, who's in us and we in him, seated on that throne in power and dominion. And we can actually imagine that all of a sudden uh, the ascension of Jesus makes sense. Um, not only was Jesus dead and buried and resurrected, but he spent 40 days on the earth. And at his ascension into the clouds, like the Son of Man would, he tells the people who's following him, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, and I'm giving it to you. So go, therefore, into the four corners of the earth, all the nations, baptizing and making disciples and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. Right? Because Jesus is already king, and this is that invading kingdom piece. So we know Jesus is king on the cross, but then all of a sudden, when we read about Daniel 7, and we hear that the saints of the Most High are actually going to have all this authority and power to rule with Christ, we know it's answered in our Gospels. We know that we are empowered to go and continue his gathering work across the earth. And then in 19, he said, Then I desired to know about this fourth beast. It was different from all the rest. It was exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, which devoured and broke in broken pieces and stamped what was left at its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell and the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke these great things and seemed greater than its companions. And as I looked, this horn made war with the saints, and it prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Jesus is king. His kingdom is invading right now, and there is, in this piece, more glory to come. Which leads us to Back to Mark. And the next part of our map, God at your house. Mark 13, 28, Jesus continues after this 
imagery of the Son of Man, the human who gets all the divine glory and power after triumphing over the beasts, seated at the right hand of God. And this is what Jesus says. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near. He's actually at the gates, the gates of your house. He's at the fence. Truly, I say to you, this generation won't pass away until all these things take place. He's talking to his disciples. He says, you guys are going to see the Son of Man coming in power. He says, you won't die before it's done. We know Jesus is already seated at the right hand of the Father. We know that he already has dominion, power, and glory. And he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words, they're not going to pass away. This invading kingdom is right now. It's, if we're going to take Jesus' words seriously, it's at the gates, right? God is here at your house. He's present and coming in, in some senses. And we hear this echoed throughout all of the New Testament scriptures in James 5, 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. The early Christians had this deep belief that God and his coming kingdom were so near, so close. It's in the language of Jesus. Jesus preached in his ministry, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's close. It's now. It's not far off. And I think sometimes when we talk about end times and um, what our perspective is of the end, it just seems far away. And alternatively, sometimes people get really anxious about it because they think it's coming right now. But the perspective of the church is that it is, in fact, more of that anxious perspective. It's right now, he's at the gates. And so James, speaking to the church, says, don't grumble and argue with each other because the judge, he's at your house outside the door. We hear this again in Revelation 3, 20 through 22. We all know this one. Some sing it in kids' church. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Does anyone hear my voice? If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'm going to come in to him and eat with him and he with me. It's this very same idea that God is at the gates waiting to be let in. The kingdom advancing and arriving right now. And then it says that the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me where? On my throne. Well, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus is king. His kingdom is invading. And there's more glory to come. Daniel 7 isn't far off, it's right now. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he's like, I'm at the gates knocking, I'm at your door, are you going to let me in? 
which takes us back to our final place on our map, no rest for the righteous, because we haven't gotten through this Mark text. Because guess what? It's all connected, right? In verse 32, he says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. But listen to what he says. He says, be on guard, keep awake, for you don't know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you don't know when the master of the house will come. Is it in the evening, at midnight, when the rooster crows, or in the morning? You don't know. Lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Wasn't that fascinating? It turns out that the more we reflect on the return of Jesus as king here on earth with us as he establishes his kingdom in glory, there's this ominous statement from Christ our king where he says, hey, just like the son of man, you'll see him seated at the throne. He's coming back and he's at the door. And he's going to arrive, but you actually have a job to do. You actually have work. We have a job. We have work. Isn't that fascinating? One of the largest issues I think that we run into in the church when we talk about the end times, the apocalypse, eschatology, what we might call it, is that there's a lot of debate on how it happens without a lot of debate on what we should be doing in the meantime. And the Bible seems to be more concerned with what we're supposed to be doing than us trying to figure it out. Because you don't get to decide how he comes back. And you don't get to decide when he comes back. And then Jesus is like, it's a mystery. You know why? Because if you don't know when he's coming, then you live very differently. Um, I am... Uh, Reminded of, we planted a church in Houston 15 years ago, and one of the first guys we baptized, he was an atheist his whole life, first-generation Christian. We were reading Mark, we were reading about Jesus casting out the demons, and he stopped me and he said, hey, what is the minimum amount of belief I have to believe to be a Christian? <laughs> to which I said, hey, that's that there was a human who was God, and he died for you, and for your sins to save you from an eternal reality. Um, and then he's with God right now, and you'll be with him too, minimally. I think the demons are a lot easier than that. <laughs> but the question that Scripture keeps pressing on us is, are you awake? Are you going to be found faithful when he returns? For the early church, this was particularly difficult because there was persecution tied to this kingdom. For the American church, it's a different kind of issue. Um, sloth, maybe. We get comfortable, right? Are you awake? Are you doing what he asked? Or is he going to walk through those doors and find you sleeping? Um, you know, the religious believe, wrongly, that the gospel is for what we call the frozen chosen. 
uh, you've heard this phrase, so, so heavenly minded, they do no earthly good. And sometimes, I went to seminary, sometimes that's exactly what it is. But the religious person is so fixated on the, having the right belief that sometimes they miss having the right action. You might be able to figure out how Christ comes back faithfully through Scripture, but he's not going to care about that when he gets back. He's going to care more about what did you do in the meantime. And the world gets this wrong about the gospel as well. They think we're ideologues, that we just have this perspective and worldview that we were given from an empire thousands of years ago. Um, and actually what the religious and the world, I think, get, like they believe the same thing. They both believe, wrongly, that the end of this world doesn't matter what I do. The culture is very nihilistic. It's very nothing focused. There's not a lot of purpose or meaning. But Jesus Christ taught something very different. Could you imagine being on the road with Jesus? And maybe you liked what he did. Wow, this guy's taking care of the poor. He cares about people that society doesn't care about. He seems to really know the scriptures. But then all of a sudden comes this line where he's like, yeah, well, you guys are going to see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with fire, glory. Oh, yeah, and judgment's going to happen. And are you going to be awake when that happens? But Jesus taught us, and he believed, that everything mattered. In his Sermon on the Mount, he said that God takes care of the birds, so better will he take care of you. He also says in that same sermon that the lilies are clothed in glory that Solomon can't even touch with all of his riches. Like, God cares about a lot of things here. He did take care of the poor. He did love his enemies. I know that because he loved me. The kingdom was every, what does anyone disagree with this? The kingdom was everywhere he walked. And at Pentecost, he made that available for all of us because he had the power to. He was seated on the thrones with the Lord in his fiery burning chariot. And he invites you to sit with him, which is crazy. That's the real scandal of eschatology. That's the real scandal of end times. It's not when or how he comes back. It's that he asked you to join him. It's that he opened the books and said, you're really bad, but I love you. He wants you with him. And if we take that perspective into the book of Revelation, into Daniel chapter 7, if we look at his inauguration as king, as an advancement of his kingdom invading the earth, to that glorious moment where he comes to bring justice and make all things right, it's really good news. It's not scary. We shouldn't be divided on it. And just as we were surprised 2,000 years ago when he came the first time, you might be surprised when he comes the second. That is the whole vision 
of Christmas. It's the whole vision of our gospel, that we are all charged to do this work together. It says the saints are seated with him, not a saint. It's not like there's just like one good guy like Connor up there, right? Jesus is king already. His kingdom is invading now. And yes, there is more good, glorious stuff to come. And we shouldn't be fearful of it. And we shouldn't spend our time and energy focused on really nailing how or when it's going to happen. We don't have the time to build maps and timelines around the mystery while people are perishing. It's an impossible, it's an impossible task anyways if you believe what Jesus says here. With the time you do have, however short or long it may be, you should really work on learning to love your neighbor well. And then when you do that, maybe you can get around to the, the loving the enemy part. It is our chief concern to love our neighbor well and to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. These two are the chief concerns of all Christians. And I think when it comes to secondary and tertiary issues, like how Jesus comes back and when he comes back, or who the next pastor is going to be or who he's not going to be, we don't have time to argue about that because people are perishing. And church, you have a vote next week for your next shepherd. And I can promise you, not everyone is going to have their vote um, be essentially um, the winner. And so for those of you where the vote does not go your way, the judge is at the door. We don't have time to fight with each other. We have a job to do. And so we will work together to follow Jesus well, to complete his mission with the promise, the promise that he's here, coming, invading. He's king, and he wants to do a lot of good things with this new power. He's only had it for 2,000 years now. And so in the spirit of the apocalypse, I will end with this ominous but shifting statement. The judge is at the door. He's at the gates. He's knocking and ready to be let in. Are you awake to let him in? The band will come up now. And I'm going to pray. There'll be elders in the back who will pray with you. My encouragement for you this Christmas season is to love fiercely those who are around you, to celebrate the risen Jesus Christ, our King, to walk into darkness in an invasion. And so pray with me. King Jesus, we love you and we know
that you are powerful and strong and mighty, that you were found worthy before the ancient of days to be given the rulership and the dominion over all the earth, that your kingdom has no end, and that you've asked us to join you, to be your citizens, your children, to know your goodness and your reign eternally. And Jesus, I pray for Go Church Ridgefield this morning that you would empower with your spirit each and every one of us to walk in the way you've commanded us to bring about the light and glory to all the nations that all men and all women would celebrate when you return, that you are king, that you are good, and that you know and love each and every one of us powerfully with the strength and the might of God. And we praise you and thank you that you love those around us and you want us to learn that from you today. We praise you and thank you. And it's in Christ's name, his powerful name, that we get to worship. Amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.